Welcome to the Ethical Consumer Podcast. I'm your host, Julia Abbott. Join me for weekly chats with food and beverage brands, because caring about the process behind your food should be just as important as enjoying it. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Ethical Consumer Podcast. I'm your host, Julia, and today I am here with Blake Roop of University of Iowa. She is a sustainability researcher and the program manager for sustainability at U of I. Welcome, Blake. Hi, thank you for having me. You are so welcome. I am so excited because this episode, it's not really a follow-up to previous episodes that we've had, but you were actually the one that pointed me in the direction of Olivia Angus for Olivia for the Ocean, which was awesome. And she's great. Yes, she's wonderful. (laughs) So that was super fun. And then one of the first few episodes that we did was with the sustainability manager for single speed brewing here in Cedar, well, pardon, Cedar Falls and Waterloo, Iowa, Rachel Beck. So this is kind of our second or third talk on sustainability that doesn't necessarily deal with just food and beverage. So we're getting to the nitty gritty, which I enjoy. Wonderful. Let's get started. Yes, I love it. So first of all, what is your favorite food since we are technically a food and beverage podcast? That is a lovely question. I would say probably anything that involves eggs. So mm-hmm. they're essentially, I mean, they're not relegated to breakfast, but they're very much an essential part of breakfast and breakfast is my favorite food category by far. So I would say pretty much anything with eggs. Although if I had to pick my favorite, if I were out at a restaurant, I would probably say eggs Benedict because I can't make that myself. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) definitely my go-to order at a restaurant. (laughs) There is, we will actually, I didn't intend to plug this, but since you've said it, we will actually be hosting a giveaway with some of our previous guests on the podcast. One of Rich's frontier co-op, not that far Mm -hmm. from where you are. And one of the seasoning and sauce packets that they sent is actually for eggs, Benedict sauce. I'm going to knock on wood. <laughs> it's, it's like three. It, it's, I can see it. I see the yellow of the package, like two feet to my left. So <laughs> awesome. and we love frontier co-op. We love them a lot. We do. Oh, they're so wonderful. Yes. They really are. Yes. Alicia came on their sustainability coordinator. So we've had some, um, but as a researcher, you have a very unique perspective in the sense that you you're working with the university of Iowa and are you working not only with their campus and the operations on campus, but also research, researching different elements of sustainability in general? How does that, how does that look? Yeah, so um, I think the, um, the umbrella of my office is I work at the University of Iowa. I'm in the Office of Sustainability and the, and the Environment. Um, and I think the umbrella of our office is a campus-wide, we have a campus-wide reach um, so we, we, we deal with work in athletics, in the hospital, on campus, um, in housing, in our dining operations, our facilities side with, um, you know, the pesticides and things we apply to campus, as well as just the management plan for our green spaces and our, um, you know, non-green spaces alike. Um, pretty much anything across the spectrum of campus uh, that has to deal with not just the physical aspect of campus, but also our water, as well as the research and things that are happening and the classes that students take on campus as well in the academic side. That entire umbrella really is um, what our office works. So all on. of the things. Yeah. 
It's pretty incredible. Now you have made your way up into kind of a higher position at the university, which we'll talk about in a little bit, but what were your foundations? Where did you grow up? How did you end up where you are right now? Oh, wow. That's a good question. (laughs) I mean, I don't need to hear about like your two-year-old dance recital, but like... (laughs) (laughs) Definitely didn't do dance. Should have. Might be a little bit more coordinated today if I had. (laughs) Um, I grew up in Southeast Iowa. I'm from a town called Ottumwa, which is um, the lovely town that is pretty much the hub of uh, meatpacking in the region. They have a meatpacking plant that's owned by JBS currently. When I was a kid, it was XL. I don't know who owned it. In any case, the whole point is. Um, so I grew up on a um, farm right outside of Atumwa, just south of it. And I mean, I grew up, my entire childhood is the, I mean, it's the idyllic quintessential farm life upbringing. You know, we bottle fed calves. We did a lot of cow herding with my family. Growing up, we just did, we had Angus cows that grew up on our property. And it was more of, just from the aspect of my parents just liked to hobby farm. So they both had jobs uh, just in a doing other things, but they had this property and they, um, whenever something interested them, they took it on themselves to bring it to the farm. So we went from having pigs to having peacocks to llamas for a while. And then they settled on Angus beef because they could, um, we could slaughter one a year and have it as something that we ate as a family for the whole year and then sell the other ones that we raised because Angus beef is really, really prized. So yeah, I grew up just out and about in, on our farm. There's a lot of wooded areas. So we were just in creeks and playing around in the woods and stuff. And so I just got this deep appreciation for just being outdoors and, um, and all of that from, from growing up and being outside literally my entire childhood. I don't have a whole lot of memories from being indoors. Let's just say that. So yeah. So then um, when I decided to go to college, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. So I did this, I was sort of on this pre-law track. And then instead of spending six figures on a law degree, immediately I decided to work as a paralegal for a while, just to see if I liked the real life of being in a law firm or different kinds of law practices. And thank God I did that because that was not my calling, not in a bad way, just in a very educated way. I just learned that I really wanted to do something that had to do with outside, outdoors, and just go back to my roots of where I feel comfortable, which is just being outside (laughs) in nature. So yeah, I went back to school, got my master's in conservation policy uh, at the University of Iowa. And so yeah, from there, I... I've settled into my lovely career at the university in the Office of Sustainability, helping researchers, faculty members, and students, and mostly students, um, conduct research and build their own portfolios for their own careers once they sadly leave our campus and go on to bigger and better things. And now we're kind of mother hitting the (laughs) Yes, it's a little (laughs) bit more. I'm a little bit more in that um, sad mindset now because it's been, it's just, ended the semester just ended so we have a little cohort of our interns who are now leaving us as of last week and this week they're sort of tiptoeing out the door and it's sad to see them go so but it's great they've done a lot of really great work over the past couple years good so do you get to work with them for all four years on campus I know my fiance is a percussion professor at University of Northern Iowa 
And some of them he works with for a couple of years. Some of them he works with for the whole year. He does some, um, what do I want to call it? Gen ed classes. So in that case, they only get them for a semester really, but you really build a relationship with the students over those four years, I assume. Yes. And um, I would say a lot of the students that we've had that are leaving now, we've, we've had them in our office for probably one or two years, two years, probably max, um, because our office is fairly new. Like the university's had an office of sustainability, but it was housed in a different department, a different unit, and had a lot, a much different mission um, as an office until I think it was just about three years ago, they hired my current boss, who is the director of our office. Um, and then once he was hired, they sort of changed the mission of the office and turned it a little bit, a lot more, not a little bit, a lot more student focused and student centric. So then I was hired about a year after him into this role, um, as well as my colleague were pretty small office. It's just the three staff members, the three of us. And so once the three of us were all hired and we started getting things um, up and running with the programs that we wanted to work on, then we started bringing students on. So hopefully now going forward, we, we're doing interviews and hiring new interns and we're hiring a much younger crowd than the ones we hired previously who are now leaving us. Um, because yeah, now we'll, as sort of, as you mentioned, we'll be able to have them for a much longer time working with our office and helping us um, expand a lot of the mission that we do. Cool. So does each semester, does a student take on a project? It really is up to the students. We, um, like we have, our office has a strategic plan that we hope to, to follow just big picture year to year. These are some things we want to accomplish. Mm -hmm. And then we sort of, we try and find students who have an interest and a history and a background or a vision for their future that they could find a project that would fit in with what they want to do. So we know some of the things that are happening on campus, obviously not all of the things, which is why we have students because they are much more knowledgeable about the ins and outs and the inner workings <laughs> of things that are happening on campus. Um, but we kind of know some of the bigger buckets of things that we want to try and achieve. One of those being like an example being we would like to be more sustainable in some of our housing practices, both on campus and off campus. And so we just hired an intern to help us work with our housing, our entire housing conglomerate on campus, because they have a huge energy footprint and consumption footprint on campus. And they just have, uh, they have such a high turnaround of people who you know live in on campus housing and it's so quick. So we would like to um, have the attention of those students who are in that those housing units while we have them there. Mm -hmm. And then once they get turned loose into the greater Iowa City or corridor area to go find other housing and take other classes on campus and do that sort of stuff, we hope we can put a little bug in their ear while they're in our housing units so that we can um, maybe talk to them later on when they do have more of a stronger foothold and idea of what they want to do when they, you know, graduate. So that's just one example. We have a student who's going to be working on some housing projects and she's trying to figure out if she wants to do on-campus versus off-campus because we have a pretty good mix of, of both. I mean, honestly, if she took on either one of those, she would have a big impact because they're just a, there's just a great population of both of those, those kinds of students. So definitely a very long-winded answer <laughs> to your question. I love it. Yeah. No, and it's 
one of those things that, you know, I would, I would suppose though it's not a thesis or do some of them, perhaps some of them eventually turn it into a thesis type situation. But when you're working on something over a long period of time, I mean, it's, it's so great that each of them would probably have their own experiences. Like you said, the things that they're interested in, and then being able to see a problem, hopefully find a solution and get to continue I mean, the, the information really, like you said, when, especially for that specific project, helping students who are perhaps living on campus or off campus with their sustainability habits. I lived in the dorms for one year when I went to you and I, and we had a recycling room Mm -hmm. and we had a trash room. And I, I don't remember it being very, this is, I'm digging, I'm digging a little bit, not that old, I'm 32, but I'm still digging to like, remember what was the recycling and garbage situation on campus? And, mm-hmm. and I don't know. I don't know if there was a good recycling situation. Now, when I go up on campus, since Matt teaches up there, there are recycling bins across campus just out next to the garbage cans. But I don't know if we had anything very good in the dorms. Exactly. And we're starting to see, I mean, we have students that are very that just come into, and this is shifting even more and more to a large population, but we have students who are coming in as 18 year old freshmen as just incredibly passionate eco warriors who wanna make a huge difference where it was usually they would come into campus, they would get involved in sort of a sustainability, like maybe adjacent student group or student work or something. And then they would by their third or third and a half year on campus, they would then become eco warriors but we're starting to see them come in as eco-warriors to begin with, which is fantastic. So it makes uh, some of, sometimes it makes our job a lot easier because we don't have a whole lot of like educating to do. We're being educated more and more by our younger, mm-hmm. our younger students. This is absolutely fantastic. But um, we're starting to see, you know, like the, the talk now is recycling is everywhere and it, but it's not always, it's not a perfect solution. And sometimes it's not even a good solution to the consumption problem or the waste problem. So we're starting to have students ask for more composting because that can have a much bigger impact on, um, you know, the actual, uh, our actual energy consumption and um, carbon emissions and all of that. Like we can make a much bigger impact if we were to divert so much of our food waste and stuff. So, yeah. So now students come in and they're not so much asking, where can I get my blue bin? But they're asking more like, where can I compost? Where can I take this sort of stuff? So we're starting to see it evolve more and, and some of the, the rings of sustainability are getting a lot bigger around a lot of our student groups, which is just, it's fantastic to watch. Hmm. I will say one thing for Gen Z, they might be trying to steal our skinny jeans and our side parts. They're trying to nix yeah. the skinnies and the side parts. And I'm so not okay with that, but the eco warrior business, they are on it with their hydro flasks and yep. they <laughs> like- are. And their national park stickers on their hydro class. Look, I'm all for it. You go for it. (laughs) You tell me all those parks you've been to. Support our public land. I'm all for it. (laughs) Love it. Love it. Love it. Now, something that you had mentioned previously when we talked before uh, that you are very passionate about is marine conservation. Mm -hmm. And this is intriguing to me because you grew up in the Midwest on a farm. I mean, like, what is a Tumla away from Cedar Falls? Like an hour and a half, hour 45? Yeah, it might be closer to two because it's pretty closer. It's a lot closer to Missouri than Mm, you would think. It is indeed. There's a train station in a Tumla, isn't there? There is. Yes, there is. 
I love Amtrak. Amtrak makes it's, me happy. <laughs> I've still never been on one. It's been oh. something I've wanted to do forever and it seems to get less and less accessible. You know, more expensive for some reason. We get it. That that could be a future episode. The the public transportation thing. I mean, that is a big part of sustainability as well. But the difficult part is when it becomes inaccessible. But it's yeah. because so many people have cars. Yeah, that, I mean, and I, I look. I could have an entire podcast on my feelings about planes and the prices of plane tickets. Like they're not based on anything but wishes and dreams. It drives me crazy. And there's no reason why I've, I've truly flown. I've flown from Cedar Rapids, Iowa to Cairo, Egypt via Rome, Italy. And it cost less than a month of my rent at the time, which was not very much. It was, first of all, that's not based on actual facts and figures. That's not yes. based on inputs. There's no inputs that are calculated to make that number make sense to me. So anyway, I could just I could go on and on about it. I feel a future episode coming on on public transportation. <laughs> yeah. Oh my goodness. There that is though, like you get to see the numbers with things because we're left wondering, well, is it because of gas or oil? And we're not going to talk about gas or oil today, but uh <laughs> you know, not politically speaking. But um it, it what what makes it cost effective or not cost effective? Exactly. We don't always get to see that. You actually get to see numbers depending on what your students or you have studied in the past based on, you know, how many. Well, I don't know. You tell me. Are, has some of your personal research been on um, the effectiveness or ineffectiveness of our recycling system? Do you have numbers for like how much? plastic actually gets recycled or white plastic versus black plastic, which I didn't realize black plastic can't be recycled into anything but black plastic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That was mind blowing. Our last episode actually, which will be as we're recording this releasing tomorrow. Oh, but wonderful. when this comes out a week ago with simply good jars, they have black lids on their jars and they're switching to white because black's not recyclable. That is fascinating there are so many of those and I think that's one thing we find so interesting with students that come into the university is we don't have a student group that we don't have a like a cohort of students that come in with the same exact knowledge and information about anything let alone how to recycle what to throw away what you can and cannot recycle whether you can compost a banana peel versus not like that sort of information because we have students coming to our campus from everywhere, including um, international students, but also rural rural Iowa students who, um, you know, maybe like myself, I always, I've done a lot of like self, a lot of thinking and and asking myself, like, why am I so interested in garbage and trash? (laughs) Because it's not something most people are passionate about, but I just, I find myself obsessed with it because like growing up on the farm in the middle of nowhere, like we didn't have garbage pickup. That wasn't a thing that happened. We didn't have recycle, like recycle. There was a recycling day, which was like once or twice a year, we would throw all of our recyclables into the truck and take it to the recycling center, which was, you know, like 25 miles away. So we had to do like physical hauling of our, of our recycling. And then our garbage, we just like burned. My parents to this day still burn their garbage, which is, something that in rural Iowa, most people actually do. Like everybody has a burning barrel. So we call it. And I asked my dad the other day, like, 
how did you source burning barrels? Like, where did you find these barrels that became our burning barrels? Like, as an adult, looking back, I'm like, did you go down, like, there's no Craigslist back then. Like, how did you get a burning barrel? Yeah, so I think that's where my my passion for garbage and stuff comes from is because, yeah, it was it was a physical problem we had growing up where that we had to like actually physically take care of our own garbage which just made it a much more like omnipresent issue in our life because yeah everything we had to physically haul everything so yeah I mean that is to say that's one rural story of rural Iowa but we still have students coming in that have that exact same experience where they don't they're not aware that certain things are recyclable because it's not a process they grew up learning about when they were you know in their own homes and stuff so we have this wide spectrum of knowledge all the way to, you know, like eco warriors who usually come from a more urban background or suburban where, you know, they do have like intense uh, and amazing like education programs from a young age for all of these different topics. So yeah, that's, um, it's been very interesting having to process all of those kinds of students and get everybody sort of up to the same like level of knowledge about at least not, you know, it's not our job as an office to tell students that, Type three and type four recycle or plastics are always recyclable. Aluminum is better than everything else. Always use glass. Like we're not trying to talk about, we're not trying to put those little things in people's ears because Mm -hmm. as we've learned with our relationship with plastic as a generation and as multiple generations have learned, it's like, it's not the solution we thought it was and our understanding of its problems have evolved since it first, it was first developed And I think, you know, I think what we want students to learn is not a fact that could be wrong in five years. We don't want them to memorize something that could be out of Mm -hmm. practice in the next five or 10 years, but rather how they can learn, just learn and understand the process of like plastics itself could be a problem. Here's how to research when you go into the future and you go into your real life and you go into the world, here's how to research and find answers to these problems and these, these issues so that they can just become knowledgeable in how to find answers going forward. So they don't just have things that they've memorized that may be wrong in a couple of years, but they know how to find right answers as, as they evolve. That is that answers your question. But. Oh, I love it. It does. Well, and that is just an amazing thing that you just said too, is it's not just about memorizing facts about how to dispose of the things that we are using it's mm-hmm. more so changing the way we use the things and the things exactly <laughs> and like a great example of that is it didn't occur to me until probably three or four years ago but like I remember a, a plastic water bottle when I was in middle school let's say that plastic water bottle felt different when you, when you held it, because it was made out of like 90% more plastic Mm -hmm. and a different kind of plastic, but they've evolved plastic so much that the plastic involved in a water bottle is so thin and so different chemically, like sort of different chemically than the plastic of, you know, 20 years ago, Mm -hmm. just because they've gotten better at manufacturing plastic. So what was you know, back in 2002, some, a product that was probably pretty easy to recycle and turn into something else no longer is, even though it's the exact same thing, right? Mm-hmm. And so we want students to know that, you know, today you may be using, you may be drinking out of an aluminum can, but let's teach, let's learn the process of aluminum and the science of aluminum so that you understand why that's actually a really great product versus 
you know, water bottles of today versus yesterday. So yeah, just more elaborates that point of, yeah, learning about those processes. That's mm-hmm. It, the rules are the rules aren't going to change if you understand the composition of something per se. I mean, like you said, with plastic, plastic has obviously changed a lot. I'm remembering that we used to reuse single-use plastic water bottles for like months. You know, like you'd get something from a sporting event and we would just keep using them as kids. And my mom would buy the 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 sport tops to go on the water bottles. I just feel like that's what people did. Like the um, metal water bottles weren't as much of a thing back then mm-hmm. and we could do that. But now I'm thinking of like the feeling, like if someone leaves a plastic water bottle at the studio or something like that, I'll pick it up and it crumples. Like there's not even, it's like, okay, it's made of 90% less plastic or a different type of plastic, but you also have less of a chance to reuse it too, which is mm-hmm. like, well, okay, if we could all just get metal ones, that'd be like the best option. But like, yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Exactly. Sometimes you just can't win. Oh, mm-hmm. I love definitely that your awareness came from, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, definitely, there's definitely no winning when it comes to plastic. No, no, which is very difficult. Your awareness came so much from just looking, having to look and deal with your own trash, which is what Olivia had said as well when she started collecting her garbage and seeing, look how much trash I have. And then comparing it to the following year, look how much trash I hopefully have. That's less than last year's February, last year's March, what have you. I I never thought about the fact that there would not be garbage pickup in rural areas but i suppose depending on the la- the size of your lot yeah a garbage man is not going to make like a 50 mile square to cover every avenue x y and z literally usually like 400 numbers in the street name or letter numbers letter numbers oh man i, I wish this was <laughs> coffee it's tea i think i need more coffee letters <laughs> letter combinations and the street names yeah that would not work no and and I mean those routes I mean they have it down to a science in urban areas right but those routes in rural areas unless you get all of your neighbors on board like you as a as a person as a homeowner if my parents for example if my parents wanted to have um like a garbage company come and pick up once a week or once a month, they would have to try and get their neighbors to join in on that route as well. Or mm-hmm. else my parents would, their price of that pickup would be astronomical compared to, sure. you know, what my bill here is in Iowa City for them to come and take recycling, trash and compost from my bin every Wednesday. It's, mm-hmm. it's almost nothing compared to what my parents would have to pay because they would be the only person that that truck would have to come and service and it would just yeah, it's, yeah, it's logistically, it would be a nightmare. Right. Oh, most definitely. Did you just say you get your compost picked up curbside? Yeah, Iowa City is <laughs> wonderful. We have our recycling, garbage, and compost bins are all the same size. They just have a different color lid. And um, yeah, we are really highly encouraged to, in every way possible, to have most of our, yeah, uh, organics waste end up in that compost bin. And they've made that um, pretty standard for 
all of the city, which is wow. And it's not just because I think our yard waste bins say no composting. It's yard waste only. That's a, that's a downfall in Cedar Falls area. Unfortunately is where we we were yard waste only. Yep. That was where we were a couple of years ago. And then they put in this giant, um, compost processing center. And so they're able to do, because the reason why you don't collect both at the same time is if you don't have a hot enough, um, digester and mm-hmm. like enough um, microbes and stuff in your composting center to really break those down in a timely manner and not like over the span of decades, which is what it would take for some, you know, to, for some of those you know, little bugs to eat a piece of bread versus tree bark. Those are two, right. two very different things that, that they have to do. But um, the one they've got here, they, they created one in Iowa city a couple of years ago and they did a lot of testing and a lot of making sure that everything can be put into it and come out on the other end in a really short time span and they've got mm-hmm. it down now and so the whole city is able to contribute any organics yard waste household organics it's it's incredible that's amazing mm-hmm. i would love to see something like that here i have so many well my parents even my parents are starting a compost barrel because yeah. I mean, my mom gardens, so she's going to use that in her gardening, but I have so many friends that do that on their own, but Mm -hmm. if they don't have a garden or somewhere else to put it or dispose of it, or say they live in an apartment or something like that, and they do not have a yard or garden that it can go in eventually, it's, I I don't compost. And that's Mm -hmm. something that I have wanted to do. I told myself it was in my new year's resolution mini sewed. I'm going to start composting this year. And I haven't yet. Have and you heard? Are, but have you heard of a worm bin? Yes, that is what. Let's see. I believe my friend Clarissa and Thanks. that's and you and my parents and um, I have a friend Jaime and Stephanie. I believe they're looking into doing that too. Awesome! Yeah, so, that's a really low cost, really easy way where you, it's really low maintenance. It's, yeah. it's a lot more simple. But again, it comes down to like what you, what do you do once you have like something that you can, I mean, just go put it out anywhere. If you're walking right. to work one day and you've got, there's like a tree, you're like, Oh, here you go. Here's some compost tree. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I think, I mean, making, that's the hardest part is we deal with this on campus at the university as well as just making it as easy as possible when students are walking to and from going from place to place to make sure that they can make the right decision when they need to. I think that's, logistically difficult as it is in our own homes to make sure that, you know, if we have, if we want to divert any sort of waste stream, it's not always easy to do. Um, and we get a lot of questions from students now about why, you know, why aren't there more composting bins? Like there are next, there's trash cans, there's recycle bins, but there are no compost bins. And so we're trying to pilot projects where we put those compost bins in highly trafficked areas to see, you know, if we can actually make it a successful program. Mm. The difficulty is that, I mean, there's just a lot of contamination that ends up happening. Like people think you can throw chewing gum in or if, I mean, it's not even things like that. It can be like clamshells from restaurants. If they're, Mm. if they feel like they're paper, they could come across as something that is compostable. When you're walking across campus, it feels like paper. So I'm going to put it in a compost bin, but it has a wax lining and therefore isn't compostable. But that's not something you know, you just know off the top of your head, right? Um, it feels like paper. I'm going to put in the compost. That's a very logical and good decision to make. It's just, mm-hmm. 
the harder piece of like, we don't always know what's in the stuff that we are using. So we don't always make the decision we should because we don't have that knowledge and information. So it's another part of my job that I find absolutely fascinating. Um, but yeah, making those decisions easier for people as they're going about their daily lives is sort of the trick. And also it keeps me in my job, which is <laughs> fantastic, you know? It's always a good thing. Yes. Mm -hmm. I, that with, with what you said about, we don't always know what's in the materials that we're using, like the wish recycling where you think, oh, well, I hope this, I hope this is actually correct. I hope I cleaned this enough. And, and the how to recycle and how to compost labels have been extremely helpful to me recently, now that that's on like the majority of at least grocery store goods, because you know, if the little plastic tray is actually recyclable or not, the film is not going to be, but at least you can recycle the tray. Like, yeah, it's hard. And it why is. is it so hard to be sustainable and to have good habits yeah. and practices? Like, why? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I mean, there's, there are a dozen answers. And I think the number one is just, we don't know. We're just not we're not able to know based on just the supply train and the supply chains of everything that we come in contact with. It's just almost impossible for us to know everything that we are consuming and we're using and all of that stuff. And I think probably Olivia probably talked about a lot of that a lot in her, just her goal to be zero waste. It's got to be very difficult when I think the biggest obstacle to that is the education part where how can I learn X, Y, and Z so that I know that I won't have these waste streams in me. It's gotta be. Right. And I mean, it's got, it's, it's one thing to want to do that on a coast where there are a lot more options and I'm sure more access to bulk stores. So you don't have to, um, you know, purchase packaging and things. That's just, it's a unique issue in the Midwest where, especially like in rural Iowa, if I go back to my hometown, yeah, that's a wish. <laughs> I just saw her Instagram post. She went to the farmer's market out there and just filled her beautiful big mason jar with a bunch of blueberries. And I'm jealous. It's idyllic, right? It sounds like something Cinderella would do or like Snow White. <laughs> that's truly what amazing. And I'm glad yeah. to see it. It's not just, I mean, 10 years ago, that was what I was seeing come out of France and, um, Italy, you know, mm -hmm. those, the European countries that are really, that really do embody the local is better approach to pretty much every single thing possible. And so that was coming out of there 10 years ago, and now it's coming out of California, which is wonderful. So I'm hoping. <laughs> Maybe it will make its way into the Midwest. <laughs> exactly. Well, it's, you know, I love, I love my Midwest. I do, I do. It's made it to Chicago. It's happening a lot more in Chicago. So, hey. Yeah. there. Sometimes it in just Minneapolis. takes a minute. Mm -hmm. yeah. Now, sorry, we started to talk about the marine conservation earlier, and then we totally tangented. <laughs> it's okay. You know, we I, we just get excited about things sometimes. Yes. yes but, yeah. If you start talking about garbage, look. <laughs> I can't help myself. Blake loves garbage. What did I write on here? I think it was from your website. Where is it? Blake loves trash. Studying it, not creating it. Now, the motivation for it, so tying back to the marine conservation, when we had chatted just previously about what we were going to wrap the episode around, um, it wasn't actually recycling and composting, <laughs> but it was just sustainability in general. And also the motivation that we have to have here in the Midwest being Mississippi River adjacent, mm 
mm-hmm. because what we do here very much affects the Gulf of Mexico. And we touched on this with um, Des Moines Waterworks, Iowa Environmental Council's um, Jennifer Terry in that episode too. Wonderful. She's Love a boss. She She's really awesome. Um, but yours was, we, we talked previously about the trash dilemma in the Gulf of Mexico too. Hers was more runoff and pesticides, which mm-hmm. I mean, you obviously deal with as well, whole scope of sustainability, but um, w- was your motivation with uh, marine conservation based on what you were seeing in rivers or did that come from somewhere else? Um, that came from my master's thesis. I was, um, as part of my program here at the university, I was supposed to do an uh, international research project somewhere overseas. And so I um, have always, I've been studying Spanish since I was a very young child. So I've always wanted to go to Mexico and sort of learn about some of the things there. And so in, in preparation for a master's thesis on something, some environmental policy conservation issues in Mexico, um, I just sort of started doing a lot of research on on the Mississippi and you know what goes into the Gulf and how it gets into Mexico. And I was doing this research. I did some pretty interesting research with some other faculty members here at the university who study like Gulf streams and just ocean, um, yeah, ocean tides and stuff. And so we got we got really into just why the Gulf of Mexico is such an interesting landscape to study in that it basically it's essentially a bathtub there's very few ins and outs of for the water in the gulf there's like one jet stream that goes in and it takes everything out and so everything in the gulf of mexico is sort of this interesting it's sort of an interesting bathtub model to study and so that's why every time that there's a there's an oil spill in the gulf it's a very big deal and then when I started just studying it, I was just studying, yeah, there was a lot of nutrient pollution runoff sort of topics and stuff. But then I got very interested. There's a couple, there were a couple of grad students who have now gone to California to do their own work on other topics, but they were studying some of the um, garbage inputs from flooding events here in the Midwest. And so um, we have quite a, I mean, I very vividly remember the flood of 1983. My family was very affected. Um, so we lived on the river at that time. And so, yeah, growing up with that flood and then the flood of 2008 happening. And then, I mean, there's, there's floods every year now, it seems, which is, it's not something that's going to stop anytime soon. But with those events happening, it was fascinating to learn of just how much of our stuff here in the Midwest ends up in the Mississippi from those events that we literally don't have control over and that we don't have control over our stuff ending up in those places. And I always just have these pictures of like people's dining hutches just like floating down the river. There's a lot of, yeah, exactly. There's just so many people that work on the Mississippi as well, cleaning it up from, of all of the stuff that gets put into it, whether on purpose or, or not. So yeah, I just, I got really into doing those sorts of, those sorts of research questions, asking those questions because yeah, I see it. We see it every time there's a flood and that floods are happening so much more frequently. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I ended up going to Mexico to do my research um, on the coast of Veracruz, which is an in, which is sort of, it's a big town on the Gulf of, of Mexico, sort of right in the middle of the big curve. And so I designed a research study where I went and quantified and classified just how much garbage was on the beaches and so I assumed 
it would be, you know, garbage that was floating in with the tide being deposited overnight and flowing out with the tide in the morning. And it turned out it was actually a lot of the garbage I was finding was just people who were visiting the beaches for recreation were just leaving stuff behind that was then mm. being, I know, was then being taken out and thrown back in. And it was just really interesting. But there were also things that got floated back in as well. I found a bunch of medicine bottles that were in Russian that one morning when I was walking. So they, those had been oh. brought up in the tide for some reason and, and left. And yeah, I found a ton of, uh, literally a ton of garbage that summer because I was there for the whole summer and I did a bunch of different beach cleans and I weighed all the garbage that I collected. And I ended up finding over a ton, literally a ton of garbage and that I, I made friends with different waste collectors and stuff there because they have um, people who collect plastic and metal and things to be sold back into the recycling markets. So I would collect all this garbage and I would give it to these reclaimers who would then go and, and make money and stuff. And so again, it was much very similar to my youth in that I spent that entire summer physically handling garbage. <laughs> and so it was really eye-opening to see just the scope and the scale of the problem that we have as consumers in the society is it's and it's not just the United States, it's happening everywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, are sort of dealing with these problems of like there's just it, it's too easy to have single use everything. And it's so cheap to have single use everything that it's just becoming this massive problem. And so, yeah, that's sort of how I got into the marine environments and, and garbage and stuff. And then at, you can truly follow, you can just ping pong your way up the Gulf, up the Mississippi from the Gulf and just see compounding issues that, um, yeah, garbage, nutrient runoff, pollution, all that is having on communities. It's fascinating. I find it so interesting and kind of, I don't know if it's a coincidence or causation, causality. I don't know which, which conjugation for that one, but uh, (laughs) that Jennifer actually grew up on a dairy farm too, that both of you have sort of a more rural farm Mm -hmm. background in your childhood. And then this is what both of you have decided to focus your careers around And I can't help but think, yeah, that both of you had that connection to being outdoors and maybe just paying attention more to like the garbage that you saw around or, or what, or just understanding that the Midwest with us having mostly agriculture as kind of the main, well, we have like John Deere and the universities and things like that too. And um, meat packing, but that is, mm-hmm. that's kind of what the Midwest has and, mm-hmm. you know, your family and her family too, just you, you are very connected to what goes on. And I think some of us, myself included, just aren't because I've never, I've never had to look at my own trash. I it think is. I'd be a little <laughs> upset if I did. I think I'd be yeah. proud compared to like, five to 10 years ago and just, you know, what I'm not doing at least, but, oh, that would be a very big reckoning if we all just looked at our garbage can. I'm very pleased to say, Matt and myself, we do not have children. Um, If we miss a garbage day or two, if we forget to put the garbage can out, we're okay still. Mm -hmm. We're not a full garbage can kind of couple, but there's still, there's still more that we could do, but us is, we mentioned that just before we ha- we started recording, actually, us as consumers have certain responsibilities. 
mm-hmm. but also the systems that are in place also have a responsibility to help the consumers do what's right. And arguably a larger one, I would say <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think, I mean, we've been sold a narrative that people, individuals can make a change and that's, and I, I don't think that's wrong. I think if enough people refuse to take a plastic straw from McDonald's and they're wasting money by, you know, supplying their stores with plastic straws, they'll stop doing, you know, I think individuals together in groups can make changes at a larger level as well. But I also think those decision makers who have made it so incredibly easy and cheap to to continue to use single use items and dispose of them. And then um, little do we know that they're being disposed of improperly and unethically and in a very unjust way on populations all across the world. Mm -hmm. Um, I think if, if, yeah, if larger corporations and the larger hands that be at a much larger scale, I think they have a lot larger responsibility to kind of change the way that things are more so than individual people do. Definitely. But I think well, it's going to take individual people to make that happen. For sure. Well, and just letting them know and like, well, now I'm very curious what type of impact I could possibly have on my community. I'm not signing myself up for this, but now I feel like I have to uh, trying to get a compost facility going because that's, that's, a difficult part for municipalities that are not Iowa city that do not yes. have <laughs> yes. collection. And I think, um, I mean, one thing that I think is even more important to stress is, as I think we've learned over the past year in this pandemic times is trying to find some ways for community to exist. Um, mm-hmm. And so I've listened to some interesting communal podcast ideas where people have said, you know, if you live in a neighborhood, if you're in, uh, an urban setting or a suburban setting and you have like-minded individuals around you and someone has a backyard and, or if there's a place where you can start like a community compost like bin or section of someone's yard to use as a compost bin that your community can use um, like finding those ways to find community on top of being sustainable as well I, I don't think we would have as successful a sustainability movement over the past 20 years without um the idea of just trying to build community as well. Mm-hmm. For sure. And then you have more voices to speak up and clearly more interest and you don't feel alone because I, I feel like that yeah. sometimes that's it. You feel kind of alone in your endeavors if you don't necessarily have a group of people like that. Especially and here in the Midwest. Oh my gosh. Indeed. <laughs> can be, being someone who's a little bit more green-minded, it can be a little bit more difficult in, in certain sure. areas. So. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. And those are the voices that are noise. Maybe there, I don't know if it's a fear to speak up or just feeling like you're alone and there's no point. But I mean, even one voice that gets to be heard maybe inspires someone else. But if you get a whole group together and go to your next city council meeting, maybe when they see that there are more people that are actually interested and you're not just that crunchy weirdo, then yeah. something will actually happen. <laughs> yeah. And definitely making that tie back to I mean, that's one thing we do at the university is just helping helping students realize that their voice matters and that they should have ownership over what's happening in their in their residence hall, in their city block, on campus, 
you know, in the city, they should have ownership over the things that they want to see happen in those places. And I mean, we use it, we say quite often, you know, you're paying to be here. This is your tuition. This is your, this is your money that are are paying us to do the jobs that we do. Mm -hmm. So tell us what you want us to do. Tell us how you want the university or Iowa city or the state of Iowa. How do you want it to look? What do you want it to be like when you come back as an alumni in 25 years? What would, what would make you so happy to see? And that those are the things that we want to put into place, but it's, it goes to the same to people who live in, you know, apartment buildings or neighborhoods around in urban areas or even rural areas, like taking ownership over the fact that you pay taxes to certain places. So you should have a say in what is happening with your waste or your garbage and um, learning those sorts of steps that, yeah, you can have ownership and you can have a voice and it matters. I love that. And if you're not producing as much trash, but you're producing compost, then it reminds me when I was bartending, this is a very weird analogy. <laughs> when I was bartending, so <laughs> many, I, for sure, every like so many people in the service industry smoke because they get to have a break. Yep. I was the only one who didn't smoke. And I said, dang it, man, like I want a 15 minute break. I'm not a smoker. So I don't. I'm not allowed. Can I get a fresh air break? Like, Mm -hmm. I don't feel like this is fair. So yeah, of course. Sure. If you're not granted, it does cost a little more money for a compost, a little bit more money (laughs) for a compost facility to get put in as compared to my uh, bartending manager to pay me to walk outside (laughs) 15 minutes of fresh air. But, uh, you know, yeah, if you're Mm -hmm. not using all of the services, why not? Yeah. You're paying for that tax. And I mean, everyone has their garbage payment, whether you have your small garbage bin or your large garbage bin. But yeah. if you're not even using that, it would be ideal if you're disposing of something in an alternative way to have that taken care of. That's also less stress mm-hmm. on the garbage on, on the landfill and garbage removal absolutely. in the area too, if you're making less stuff. Less stuff. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we could do a whole podcast episode on just the garbage system. It's, it is a it is a behemoth of a system, but I teach a whole, I mean, I talk about garbage a lot because I teach a whole class on garbage every fall at the university. So yeah, I, I definitely have very, very much an interest in this, but yeah, we could talk about landfills and all over the world and in the United States. And it's, it's fascinating, but it is, it comes back to the point of like, I would be interested to hear what Olivia has to say when, I mean, does she have a garbage service anymore that comes and takes her trash away? Like, is she still paying mm. the same city rate as her neighbors who are producing enough trash that they can't even close their lid every week, right? They're both essentially paying the same exact fee to use a lot different amount of space in that sure. landfill, right? So noticing those sorts of things and understanding that you as a person do have an equal say over what happens in your community, be that your apartment building, your neighborhood, your city. Mm-hmm. And um, get it, and learning the tools for how to advocate for what you really want to see. I think are some of the most important things we can teach people. Yeah, at I wrote that question down because I would like to remember to ask her that either they're interested on a podcast or on, <laughs> I might message her on Instagram as soon as we end our recording here because I'm very intrigued. If yeah, I would assume since there's a uh, not to speculate on her garbage. But uh, I mean, kind of, she does post those pictures every month, but she probably, 
I mean, the amount of garbage that she is now producing. It's funny. I mean, you could probably fit it in my gigantic coffee cup. Like, really, yeah, most. Of, yeah. And mm. like, I, I have a much different. It's very interesting now. I have a now one-year-old son. And so the past year has been an interesting struggle of like, wow, I just produce so much more garbage than I ever thought I ever would in my entire life. Just because I now have a tiny human who's goes, who has diapers and goes to daycare and has to have disposable ones. And yeah, it's a, it's a struggle, but um, I'd be very interested to hear. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. We're gonna have to follow up. I'm I'm getting who knows, maybe we'll have Olivia on separately. Maybe we'll have you on again. So well, I mean, I would love to have both of you on separately again, but it could be fun to do a combo episode. We've never done that. That would be but fun. That would be intriguing. That would be interesting. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll put that in my notes for next season. Um so you had mentioned you would listen to some community commune communal podcast type of podcast. That was not said eloquently. It's okay. But do you have any other um, podcast recommendations? You can advertise someone else's podcast on this podcast. That's mm-hmm. totally fine. Or any book recommendations, any books that were just like, oh my gosh, this is eye-opening. Any recommendations for consumers and trash makers and people that would like to make less trash? Yes. Although Corey, you might have to edit some of this. <laughs> we gotta pull up the we gotta pull yeah. up the Kindle app or whatever like, when you happen to be using. So I think like all of the NPRs, they always do a lot of really interesting segments that are bite-sized pieces. Especially in April, if you go back and you look at um, pretty much anything they produce, it has a Earth Month sort of lens, and so they have mm-hmm. a lot of that. So really, anything NPR, and then. I think it's how to save a planet that with Dr. Familiar. Yes. Dr. Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson, who is going to be one, one day she's going to be the next director of NOAA. I just interviewed her a couple weeks ago. She's Ooh. an incredible human being. Oh my goodness. <laughs> she does a really great podcast. I think it's called how to save a planet. I'm pretty and sure it is. And I'm pretty sure I, I at least follow her on Instagram. Yeah. She's, I mean, she's, she is creating, science communication that is um understandable and mm-hmm. thoughtful and just and ethical it's incredible i definitely recommend that one i mean there's a lot of, if you're really interested in garbage there are a lot of there's one specific garbage podcast i can't remember the name of it has a purple logo it's good i'm going to think of it in like two hours and it's gonna drive me nuts you are um, we can put that in the notes yeah. for sure <laughs> and then i think if anybody's really interested, I think, I mean, this being a food and beverage podcast, I'm, I always, I would love to have and hear more just about um, seafood in the Midwest. How is sure. that a thing? I don't quite understand, even though many people have tried to explain it to me. Um, yeah. It's fair. We are just so, Iowa, it's so interesting living in Iowa because we just don't have the relationship with the outdoors that a lot of other people do. Mm-hmm. And so when I think of people fishing and eating the fish that they catch, it makes me cringe because you, and I, I mean, I grew up, you know, in the middle of nowhere, people would go fishing on the river by my house all the time, but you, it just, you don't eat the fish. You don't right. eat the fish. That's just not right. how it is. 
Have you watched? I have not yet. Have you watched Seaspiracy? No, I have one of my, I have a couple of friends who work for Greenpeace and they, they're pretty anti it, understandably. And yeah, the, I've heard a lot of cons, like a lot of uh, people against it. Oh, to the documentary. Yeah, but I think it's mostly just because um, I think they take one very specific approach and very specific specific opinion mm-hmm. to mass global fishing. I don't think it's a wrong one to take. I think it's very interesting to highlight, especially to get people talking about the fishing practices that are happening globally that are just deteriorating, demolishing our fishing stocks for many generations to come, which is which incredibly depressing. But mm-hmm. I think if people, I think this is the Food and Beverage podcast. So like one book that was really eye-opening to me was Four Fish by Paul Greenberg. Definitely Paul Green something, Greenberg. Okay. He writes for the New York Times. But he wrote a book called Four Fish and it, it follows the history of four really important fish that we eat, like cod, tuna, um, trout. It, it follows the history of those, these four specific fish and how they made it onto our plates and just how they became such unsustainable, an unsustainable food source when they used to not be. So yeah, that one really, I really opened my eyes to just the larger global fishing industry. Sure. And it also brings it back home because trout people are fishing for trout here oh my goodness we went camping a few weekends ago and there is a a fish hatchery where we went camping outside of manchester iowa and i did not i was not even aware of the trout the trout streams the magical mm-hmm. trout streams that apparently exist in iowa that i didn't i thought we had like corn pigs and soybeans but like trout we yeah, all were you in north was that is that in the northeast yes Yep. Yep. That's trapping. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the only place yeah. we have there beautiful. Oh my goodness. It was it, the streams there were absolutely beautiful. Loved yeah. camping there. If you're looking for a semi, it's not off-grid camping, but it is it most people haven't heard of it and it's just like 40 minutes away. It's Bailey's Ford outside of mm. Manchester, Iowa. Awesome. Yeah, I've heard it up by Manchester and by like Palo. Palo. Mm-hmm. Pa- I think I've only ever Halo. seen it. I've never heard it. I've never yeah. heard that. One of those towns where I don't, yeah. It's like, is it? Yeah. Anyway, is it Nevada or Nevada? Who knows? Oh, gosh. I know. And there's right. the town so, and there's the state. And I think it's, they're it's actually pronounced different. differently. I, I don't get it. But yeah, so there's, um, yeah, there's a lot of fisheries in North. There's not a lot. There's a couple trout streams in Northeast Iowa that we are known for as having amazing trout streams. And they're actually, they're actually, the DNR is actually approving a, a CAFO, like a hog confinement, really close to one of the most popular trout streams. And they approved the permits for it. And now there's a huge public uprising because it's, it's, it's not going to go well for those trout streams. Um, mm. Yeah, it's really contentious up there right now. But this is in the Manchester, like Dubuque area. Yeah, it's up there because that the trout stream region is very small. Like it's not a yeah. lot of Iowa. It's very, it's a very specific part of Iowa. And the DNR approved this CAFO very close to just, and it's like, there's just so much more space in Iowa that you can go. You don't have to go to a trout stream. <laughs> Let them be. I'm yeah, very contentious. Yeah, I would. That's and, very I mean, close was, to me. 
yeah, and, and there's always, I have a couple of contacts at the DNR who do uh, fisheries, who run fishery stock fisheries uh, every year. They do that sort of work. And they have like a much different lens. They see fish and fishing through and they just have a much interesting, much more interesting story that I think might be good for people here in the Midwest who like eat fish and go fish, catch fish and stuff. Very fascinating. That makes me a little bit, I mean, not that I have to have my own desires satisfied by information and facts and things like that, but I will say it it really is. I had just started eating fish again and then sea spirits came out and I thought, "Uh oh, (laughs) I have to reevaluate my thoughts on fish again. Yep. Well, we're yeah. constantly doing that. You you get more information and then you have to re well, uh, you don't have to, but it'd be nice if you like thought about things once you've had more information. Yeah. But it changes. And, yeah. And I mean, it just, it goes back to the number one thing I just tell the number one piece of advice I give to even all of the students that I come across on campus when I get asked for advice. It's just when in doubt, just go local. Mm-hmm. I mean, as local as you can be, know your neighbor, know your farmer, you know, know where you get your dairy. It doesn't, I, I'm not going to say don't eat beef. Like if I like the beef I eat comes from my parents' farm, it couldn't be more sustainable and couldn't be less in, it can have a a lower impact on -hmm. our global economy and our global market, you know, and my carbon footprint couldn't be lower from eating that. But if, yeah, if someone else doesn't have that ability or connection to find someone who's local who does that sort of thing, it's like, yeah, maybe question your beef and that sort of stuff. So yeah, it's just my piece of advice isn't like, don't eat beef, don't eat chicken, try to eat impossible burgers. It's more like, <laughs> you know, try to try to keep it as local as possible. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Mm. Thank you. And for that reminder, that's always just nice too, because I am definitely a person that gets caught up in doing everything the best way that I can, but then also having to look at, okay, getting sustainably, kindly raised buffalo burgers from 20 minutes away is technically going to be more sustainable than eating an impossible burger with Mm -hmm. a whole bunch of ingredients wrapped in plastic and paper at my grocery store that is local. But where did it come from and yeah. how many, all of the ingredients that got shipped mm-hmm. and then shipped to my store or the holding yep. facility in between, like, oh, yeah. Know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I try and think of, I mean, it's not a great thing to think about all the time, but it's very interesting yeah. to think, like, how many hands have touched, like, the thing that you're buying. Like, not in a gross way, but, like, you know, how many people, how many people interacted with with the product or whatever it is before you purchased it, because it's usually a lot higher than you think, especially with like clothes and food. (laughs) It's always a lot higher than you think. So if I make, if I'm purchasing something and I'm very lucky to be able to have this, I'm now in my thirties. So, I mean, if you asked me at 18, this would not be my answer as a very broke person, but like now it's, now I just try to find stuff that is as, as local as I can get it. And then, as few people have touched it as possible because that usually means that the carbon footprint of it's a lot lower. Definitely. Thank you so much for being on. Thank you for having me. This was such a joy. It was. We started in one direction and then we went in a different direction. And there's always undiscovered directions that I think are like the exciting parts where like we get a little excited and we're like, oh, we're going to get feisty on this one. This could be a whole (laughs) other episode. 
Well, tell our listeners where they can find what you're doing. I know the broad question. I mean, U of Uh, I has their department. Yep. So all of the work things are at sustain UI. So S U S T A I N U I all one word. And then be me on everything is Blake at Iowa. So it's B L A K E at A T I O W A. Got to define the at for the yeah, candles. Like, right. Now that yes, it's like <laughs> the hashtag <laughs> and the pound sign. <laughs> yes. Too good. Wonderful. Well, thank you listeners for checking in with another episode of the ethical consumer podcast. This has been Blake Roop and I am your host, Julia discussing about what she works with, with university of Iowa sustainability and the whole other can of worms or the barrel of worms, the worm barrel that we opened up partway through. So this has been fun guys. I will see you next time.